Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, what Boris Johnson's resignation means for British national security. But first, but first, joining us is Sam Bendet of the Russia team at the Center for Naval Analyses, who is a visiting fellow at the Center for a New American Security. He is also one of the world's leading experts, not just on the Russian military, but also uh, global unmanned aerial uh, systems, as well as Russia's growing unmanned uh, air, land, sea arsenal. Sam, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much for joining us. Always great to be back. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Um, Let's uh, start, right? I mean, I think the entire world is trying to struggle uh, with where we are uh, in the conflict. Uh, Obviously, Ukrainian forces uh, retook Snake Island, uh, which is uh, important. However, in the East, uh, the Russian forces, as we've discussed so many times, are just grinding forward. They are not particularly concerned about their own casualties. They're certainly not uh, particularly concerned about the Ukrainian casualties. They're delivering 7.1 million, uh, according to the New York Times, uh, displaced just in in Ukraine uh, alone. Obviously, millions have also fled the country. uh, And the Russians have been doing right. If they lose Snake Island, they bombard uh, Odessa. Uh, whenever there's a battlefield setback, they send missiles uh, all over the country. The, there was the shopping mall in Krematorsk uh, that was hit uh, and no military value to that at, at all. Give us this sense of where we are in this snapshot, right? Russian uh, Western arms are flowing into Ukraine, but what's kind of the state of play right now on the battlefield? Well, the state of play, as you have uh, indicated earlier, is Russia's grinding advance In the east, Russian forces have claimed to have liberated all of the Lugansk region, that is the administrative borders of, uh, or uh, an area within the administrative borders of the entire Lugansk region before 2014. Russian forces uh, and their allies controlled a small portion of that region. Now they have have advanced westward uh, to have claimed all of the Lugansk. Uh, Russian forces are also preparing um, an advance to the two strategic uh, towns of Slavyansk and Kramatorsk. Um, They're hoping that if they advance along that axis, they would trap a significant number of Ukrainian forces, which are still present in the Donbass. And so we are basically witnessing Russian forces trying to slice away at the massive salient that has formed in the east, trying to gain advantage and trying to advance from the north and from the south and trap Ukrainian forces, which are still providing very significant resistance to the Russian military. Also, Russian military has uh, claimed that its departure from Snake Island wasn't a defeat. They said that it was a strategic decision and it would allow them to concentrate their forces elsewhere. Um, This was kind of met with a dry sarcasm and humor across Russian social media networks and um, especially on, on Telegram, where people obviously viewed that as uh, Russian withdrawal under significant pressure from the Ukrainian military itself. What, it, what was even worse about that, right? I mean, uh, Moscow said that it was, so this was a goodwill gesture uh, to uh, you know, help uh, open uh, Odessa and its ports in order to help Ukraine get its grain out, uh, which is 
not really credible, especially since the Russians are already stealing or destroying Ukrainian grain. And yes, uh, Russian government and the military uh, spun that off as a goodwill gesture, as a uh, strategic and tactical decision that doesn't necessarily diminish Russian force posture in the Black Sea and in Ukraine proper. But again, a lot of people who are following this conflict, especially very active telegram accounts uh, that follow this war minute by minute, uh, were remarking that, of course, this wasn't necessarily a goodwill gesture and the Russian forces had to withdraw under significant pressure from the Ukrainian military. What's also evident is that um, Ukrainians are able to target Russian forces as they advance, but also behind their own lines. Um, over the past week, there have been a lot of explosions at Russian arms depots in the captured territory in the Donetsk region. So the Ukrainian forces can identify and target the significant um, Russian um, resources, military resources, which are stationed close to the front. And of course, these type of attacks are going to make it difficult for the Russian forces to advance on their own schedule. There's going to be significant Ukrainian military resistance. There's going to be guerrilla warfare. There are going to be targeted attacks by Ukrainian special forces and volunteers on Russian positions, on Russian warehouses, on Russian's line of communications. But as, as has been noted by um, numerous uh, military analysts, including from my own CNA Russia Studies program, uh, Russian military has more resources to throw into this fight. And it is this balance of forces that uh, ultimately gives Russians a certain advantage uh, up to a point. And uh, what is the impact of all the new arms that are flowing into uh, Ukraine? Obviously, HIMARS and MLRS, the multiple launch rocket system being put to good uh, use. Uh, I thought uh, British Defense Secretary Ben Wallace, uh, certainly a leader in this crisis, has been uh, saying like, look, the Ukrainians have to use this differently. What we're giving them could be used in one barrage, but it's not like regular rocket artillery. But if they use it strategically, it can be a game changer. And indeed, it looks like Kiev is using them strategically. What are the whole spread of Western arms now that they're really starting to get to the front? How is that changing uh, the game, if at all? Or is this, you know, the case of, of sort of too little, uh, too late? On one hand, a lot of these systems are actually targeting Russian forces at a great distance. They're able to slow down Russian advances and certain locations able to extract a very heavy toll on the Russian military. But at the same time, there aren't enough of these systems to really have that massed effect that the Ukrainians were hoping for. Again, uh, Russian military simply has more of the same type of forces that they can throw into the fight. And so it's not like either military has an infinite number of resources. All of these military resources are finite. So if the Russians lose uh, a multiple launch rocket system or an artillery position, they can reallocate, they can um, bring up other systems to take their place. If the Ukrainians lose the equipment donated by the West, especially the long range artillery, uh, then that's a one-way loss. And so what is necessary are more of the same systems so that Ukrainians can use them at scale. I think the success of the Ukrainian military at this point speaks to their professionalism, their quick adaptation to the uh, constantly changing conditions, their knowledge of the Russian military and how Russian military fights. And that is why Ukrainians are able to score uh, their tactical victories with this donated equipment. But again, uh, there should be more of it and it should be used at scale so that the Ukrainians can actually 
slow down the Russian advance and force an actual stalemate. At this point, what is the Russian war aim, right? The special military operation was in Luhansk and Donetsk, right? Uh, these two independent republics uh, that Moscow was backing. But there was also this sense that Russia is going to do as much as it can to eat as much of the country and just keep grinding on. Um, Russia is cracking down at home. I want to ask you uh, about that in a minute. What is the Russian war aim from what we can divine? Do they get to these borders and stop? Because uh, on the other hand, Zelensky and the Ukrainian leadership have made clear all Russian forces have to leave Ukrainian territory, whether it's in Crimea or whether it's in the east of the country. That puts the two sides at diametrically opposite poles, right? Where are we right. in terms of what we can define, divine on what the Russians ultimately want to do? Because my sense is they will go to the Polish border if they can and just take the whole country, even if it means completely destroying it. At this point in time, Russian government is saying that they want to take all of Donetsk, which uh, is a significant territory in the east and is basically where this... Um, salient is located between the Ukrainian and the Russian positions. Uh, once they take all of Donetsk, the other goal is, again, as they've stated before, a denazification of Ukraine and uh, essentially neutralizing Ukraine as a military threat. It isn't clear right now from direct and open Russian statements if they're going to march all the way west to the Polish border and take all of Ukraine. It is clear to the Russian government and the military that they too are exhausted, their military is exhausted, and uh, taking all of Ukraine would require very significant resources. There are hints that the Russian government is moving to mobilize the country in, uh, in ways that it hasn't done before when the conflict broke out. There are hints that the Russian government is trying to mobilize the economy on a war footing by issuing decrees that would allow Russian government to force certain enterprises, certain businesses, certain institutions to work overtime and redirect the resources to the war aims. Now, how that is going to play out remains to be seen. Uh, Russian government hasn't done that. And uh, um, it, the Russian government really hasn't done that since the end of the Cold War. Right. Because during the Cold War, all of the Soviet economy was essentially working for the war aims, the war that thankfully never came. Right. Um, but uh, right now, how these type of um, economic and political moves are going to play out, I think it remains to be seen. But these are the hints that the Russian government may be preparing for longer term action, certainly through the rest of the summer, certainly through the fall. Again, their aim is to take all of Donetsk. They realize that Ukrainian defenses are very robust in that area and that it would require significant resources. Uh, Perhaps Russian government and the military are hoping that once they take all of Donetsk, the Ukrainian military would be too exhausted to, um, to put up any um, additional resistance um, of, of any significance, which would allow Russian military to march to other regions. But as you have also noted, the Ukrainian government is committed to fighting the Russian forces. Ukrainian population is also committed to fighting the Russian forces. I've uh, noted that there's some um, very effective guerrilla activity taking place, that there are strikes behind Russian lines. So this type of war can continue for quite a while. And um, that is why Ukraine depends on imported weapons to continue fighting. And that is why Russia may depend on greater 
allocation of resources countrywide to maintain its fight in Ukraine. Let me uh, ask you in the brief time we have left uh, two questions. Uh, one, uh, detentions in Russia are up. Um, our uh, mutual friend Vladimir Karamurza still remains uh, in custody. Uh, and he was uh, arrested, I think, almost a month ago at this point. Uh, right. I mean, there was the sense that he would be released in two weeks, and that's certainly not been uh, the case. And we've seen numerous articles about how the crackdowns are getting tougher uh, in Russia. As, as Russian friends have said, this is even in some cases worse <laughs> or, you know, than it was during Soviet times, uh, which is really saying something. What sort of an impact is that going to have? Because generally that can backfire uh, eventually. But in the near term, actually, most people just want to live their lives, right? And Russians are used to saying the walls have ears, keep your mouth shut, mind your own business, and you can have a comfortable life, right? I mean, what's the impact that you're seeing given you know, the number of friends you have there uh, and what you're picking up uh, on all the social media channels and conversations you're having? Well, this type of government control is different than the one exercised in the Cold War, because during the Cold War, Soviet government had a complete and total monopoly on information. And so people had no choice but to watch state television, read state newspapers and magazines and listen to state radio. Today's situation is very different. Russian population, uh, all of its parts, the young people, um, uh, those who are older, even the elderly, have access to social media. And those who are interested in the war have access to apps like the Telegram, which have really become some of the go-to sources for the war. And on Telegram, you can be part of pro-Russian or pro-Ukrainian Telegram channels. So on your own phone, you can actually have access to information that the state does not provide. And so in some ways, as it has been in the past, the reaction to the war may be a generational response. The, uh, the older Russian citizens are going to trust state a lot more because they watch more of state television, read more of the state publications. The younger people may have more questions and they, uh, they may challenge the narrative because they have access to different types of information. But we're also kind of seeing uh, that the population at large also has a war fatigue and people don't want to talk about the war a lot. For many, the war is a distant event, even if um, soldiers who are from their towns or from the regions are dying in the war and are publicly announced as such. Uh, and so a lot of younger people also just want to leave their life and continue on. There are a lot of economic worries in Russia right now, which are also taking center stage for many Russian people. The economic worries are a result of the unprecedented sanctions levied against the Russian government and the Russian government uh, trying to steer the economy away from the worst impact of these sanctions. So for many people, it's sort of the daily bread that is of much bigger concern than a war against Ukraine. Some people, including young people, are buying into the state narrative that uh, Russian government and Russian military are heroically denazifying Ukraine against, um, against uh, threats, future threats to the Russian government. And they're not challenging that narrative at all. And those brave people who are challenging the narrative are quickly finding themselves isolated and, uh, and arrested. Uh, from uh, isolated from the rest of the population, obviously arrested by the state. So um, it's sort of a mixed, um, mixed picture right now. On one hand, there are people who care very much about what their country is doing in Ukraine. On the other hand, there are people, and there are many of them, 
who really don't want to challenge what is going on in Ukraine. They just want to go on with their lives. Indeed. And let me just ask you uh, really uh, briefly on the new capabilities that Russia is bringing to the battlefield, right? I mean, a lot of focus on what are the capabilities uh, that Ukrainian forces are getting, obviously indigenously, uh, as well as uh, from Western powers. But what are the Russians moving uh, onto the battlefield from their uh, side? Because it's a country that has not just, as you, as you noted, vast uh, stockpiles uh, of munitions, but also still has you know, I mean, even if even if news reports suggest that washing machine parts are making it into weapons, uh, right, circuit boards from washing machines, at the end of the day, Russia is a big country that has a lot of industrial capability and a lot of weapons creativity, to be honest. Well, Russia continues to move a lot of its weapons and systems to the front. It is continuing to degrade uh, Ukrainian defenses. Russian military is flying aircraft sorties. It's uh, using long-range missiles. It's using... Uh, it's using different types of multiple launch rocket systems. Uh, it's also trying to support their uh, military presence with some of the um, other technologies, such as taking older Russian tanks out of uh, storage for secondary roles and, and for roles um, behind the front. Uh, for some analysts, this was evidence that the Russian military is running out of frontline uh, military technology uh, that may be the case in some parts of the front. And again, the Ukrainian front is very large, but it's not the case everywhere. And so Russian military is moving some of the older equipment, some of the modernized equipment to support its ongoing operations. And of course, for me, um, as I follow Russian development and Ukrainian development and fielding of different types of unmanned aerial vehicles and different types of military autonomy, uh, I'm seeing a a continued sort of stream of volunteer provided equipment to the front. And it is no longer just uh, sort of uh, Russian mothers or, or just, just uh, isolated sort of efforts where volunteers are donating money to buy commercial drones. Uh, yesterday, there was news that the government of Ru Rus Russian region of Buryatia is going to spend 200 million rubles from its own budget to buy equipment for the Russian military, such as uh, rifle scopes, quadrocopters, metal detectors, and many others, and send that to the front. Of course, all that public information about volunteers supplying Russians with everything from underwear to food, to medical kits, to again, rifle scopes and quadrocopters raises a lot of questions about Russian military preparedness for the war and the state of the Russian military on the front. That is, do they have enough supplies? Do they have enough resources? And this is where this social media information that I mentioned earlier comes in. You can listen to the Russian state announcements and uh, state briefings where the MOD talks about how its military has everything that it needs and how it continues to move against the Ukrainians. And uh, you can see and read the success stories about the heroic action, quote unquote, of some of these Russian soldiers and some of the units. And then you can read telegram channels where uh, really a lot of people are saying that the Russian soldiers on the front need everything because they are running out of some of the basic supplies for their existence, such as, again, uh, clothing, such as food, such as, such as medical kits. And so the question is, which narrative really is the true narrative? Right. What is the actual state of the Russian right. military in the front? Obviously, Russian military fights. Obviously, it advances forward. 
obviously its soldiers have equipment, they have materiel, but that evidence comes to us from social media posts, which are of course uh, part of the larger information campaign, right? And so all of these uh, overlapping sort of and competing stories, the right. Russian narrative that the military is prepared and has all of the supplies that it ever needs, and then the volunteer efforts, and then the volunteer narrative where uh, a lot of people are saying that the Russian military lacks some of those basic supplies. That's that's uh, something to follow, and that's that's certainly something to watch as well. And and very very briefly, because we're almost out of time, um, how are they? How are the Russian forces doing tactically? Uh, right, I mean, a lot of reporting on setbacks, uh, incompetence, uh, from what you're seeing on how the Russians, or is this just simply? superior firepower and a willingness to absorb casualties just grinding ahead despite incompetence? I think it's, uh, it's, it's the latter reason that you gave. It is superior firepower, it's more resources, and it is the willingness to send soldiers into the bus saw that is the Ukrainian combat and to take casualties to accomplish their objectives. Uh, I think once the war concludes, we're going to learn that the actual number of casualties is much higher than we are observing right now, probably on both sides. Sam, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for spending so much time with us. Really appreciate it and already looking forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Vago. And a word from our sponsors, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors are Command and Control Coverage. And we are a Farnborough International Airshow media partner and our coverage of Britain's leading airshow is sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. And joining me now is my good friend, Dr. Alex Walmsley of the Royal United Services Institute, among her many affiliations, one of Britain's finest defense analysts and thought leaders. Uh, Alex, always an honor and pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so very much for joining us today. It's great to be here, Varga. And certainly a historic day with Boris Johnson uh, announcing that he is uh, resigning as head of the Conservative Party, uh, as well as Britain's uh, prime minister, although that's a little bit uh, in the future. He's going to stay in office until a replacement is chosen. So the race is on. And I know that this is a race that nobody wants to be seen as leading because you tend to lose uh, in, in that case. Uh, and we'll get to that in, in a second. First, what, what does this mean for UK national security uh, broadly? Um, Boris Johnson was a polarizing figure leading, for example, in, in Ukraine, but then as seen as somebody, someone untrustworthy as manifest in, in uh, the Brexit agreement and the negotiations. Ultimately, what is his impact on UK national security and what does his departure bode uh, going forward, right? Because some folks were saying, if I can't trust him on Brexit, why would I trust him on a security agreement where there's blood on the line, not just, just trade? I think he's always taken national security very seriously. He wasn't necessarily the most interested in it, but he did understand the importance of strong defense. And under his leadership, um, during his time as prime minister, we have seen an increase in the defense budget and an increase in funding for security services. So, but the most important thing that the country needs now I would say, is a period of calm and stability. And that goes for the defence forces as well. There's been a big period of change. Uh, while there is the promise of new money over the next decade, uh, there is restructuring that's been going on through the integrated review and in the defence command paper. Um, and of course, the war in Ukraine has, has brought everything into a particularly sharp focus. And so right now, I would imagine that the defense chiefs in, in the ministry are taking a deep breath and wondering who might come next. 
But the one advantage of the Conservative Party is that while they may have different views on trade and on Brexit, the party is united in the need for strong defence. And I think, again, the Ukraine situation is focusing those minds. So I think it's, it's a deep breath and a period, hopefully, of stability. Um, l- let me t- take you uh, to that, right? I mean, there is a breadth of talent. Indeed, uh, you go poll uh, today suggests that Ben Wallace, uh, the defense secretary uh, and former uh, soldier, uh, ranks very, very high ahead of Rishi Sunak uh, and Hunt and a number of other possible Liz Trusts and a number of other possible contestants. Uh, competitors for the prime minister's uh, job. And indeed, Penny Morden's name uh, comes up, uh, Royal Navy uh, reservist, um, who also was the first uh, female defense uh, secretary in British history. Talk to us about who it is who might replace him and what either a Wallace administration or a Mordant uh, administration would mean for British national security. It does appear at the moment that there are going to be a huge number of potential candidates, and that doesn't bode well for the selection process of a future prime minister, which I think a lot of people are in agreement needs to be concluded sooner rather than later. Unless you're Boris Johnson, in which case you're still campaigning, right? I mean, that wasn't wasn't a resignation speech. That was a, hey, who gets your votes uh, uh, without any uh, noticeable contrition either. Oh, absolutely. And he, he d- deliberately did not use the word resign. He deliberately differentiated the parliamentary party from the electorate, the wider electorate. Right. Um, historians will have, have great fun analysing that speech. But some of the runners and riders, there, there was a period in British politics where nobody seemed to have any defence experience at all. But we have Ben Wallace in the Ministry of Defence and um, selfishly, the longer he stays there, the better. So there, there is an argument for him not throwing his hat into the ring because, um, because, because he is doing a good job. He's finally, we've finally had a Secretary of State in office long enough to really start to master their brief. Uh, but he is polling very highly today as a successor. The other person, you've mentioned Penny Mordant, Royal Naval Reservist and Defence Minister, um, but also Tom Tugendhat, who has not oh, held right. cabinet yeah. position, um, but was was a soldier by background, um, military assistant to the Chief of Defence Staff, um, has very strong military links. Um, and actually, which is quite important, because he's not been in office um, under this administration, has that is not tainted by by the the legacy of Boris, because there will be a number right. of these people that you've mentioned previously, and actually this does include Ben Wallace, who they are all saying now, oh Boris, you have to go, you're no good, this is unsustainable, but they weren't saying that for the last two and a half years, and even. Right. As things really started to deteriorate towards the end of last year, it's amazing how a politician was not brought down actually by policy, but instead by party gate and by pincher. Um, there were people who were prepared to carry on serving. And even, you know, some people only resigned this afternoon after Boris had already resigned. I mean, this was this felt rather like jumping on a bandwagon. Um So somebody like Tom Tugendhat, who was not in the government, at least can hold his hand up and say, I am, this is not part of my my background. I am the the new, the forward looking um, 
the forward-looking candidate. Um, right. So you've got three people at least, um, possibly Anne-Marie Trevelyan. Um, she, again, has done time oh, in the Ministry right. of Defence. Um, it's we're, we're in a we're in a comparatively strong situation, um, but of course it's going to be very interesting. At this stage, there are so many people who believe they might stand, or it is believed they might stand. Um, they they those have to be whittled down very quickly. Uh, and Chris Pincher, of course, uh, the um, uh, member of parliament, a deputy uh, chief whip uh, from Tamworth, uh, who precipitated this current crisis, uh, obviously allegations of impropriety uh, uh, and assault, uh, in fact. Um, let me take you to the budgetary outlook, um, uh, because uh, Alex, uh, Ben Wallace has done a tremendous job with his brief. I think he's universally admired, uh, not just over there, right? His name was being mentioned as a successor to Jens Stoltenberg, mm-hmm. whose term was extended by a year. And indeed, everybody was saying Boris wants him <laughs> out and in Brussels, uh, as opposed to anywhere uh, in, uh, uh, in, in London. Um, what is does the financial picture look like? Because the administration has been spending money in order leveling up, but Brexit has taken an economic toll on the country. We now have inflation pressures. We have an energy crisis that's making things worse. You know, I, I understand the importance of investing, but ultimately a government has to live in some manner within its means or borrow heavily and deal with the consequences of it. We certainly in the United States have browbeat all of our allies uh, spending more than really we can afford. Ultimately, what does that spending outlook realistically look like for the UK armed forces? I think things are going to be quite tough in the decade ahead because um, you 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 mentioned the impact of Brexit and the cost of living, and and of course during COVID, um, the government's furlough scheme. You know, the government printed money like there was no tomorrow. Um, to to ensure that people survived the pandemic. And that was the right thing to do at the time. But of course, that has to be handled and managed um, in the years ahead. Um, Inflation, unfortunately, is is growing um, month by month. And so even though uh, Boris um, in the the last budget um, sketched out this plan for a 10-year increase of funding um, for defence, Inflation probably means that um, things will be at best stagnant and at worst um, actually less than what was promised. And that does not help the ever-growing black hole in our defence, particularly defence equipment budget. Um, So there's going to have to be some more thought, um, particularly with the incoming new um, chief executive of DENS, the acquisition arm, um, of exactly how to do that. Alex, thanks so very much for joining us, especially on such short notice on such a historic day and look forward to having you back on again, uh, whether before Farnborough, during Farnborough or after uh, for your uh, sense on what the key takeaways at the show and what the key issues uh, that still have to be addressed by government, because whatever, uh, whichever uh, new administration, whether it's called Wallace, Trevelyan or Warden, uh, certainly has a series of challenges to address. Thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Vargo. It's been a delight to talk these things through with you, and I look forward to seeing you soon. See you soon, Alex. Thanks so much. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. 
Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.